Welcome back, folks, to Running Unopposed. It's Dave and Rose. Uh, no Thomas this time. Yes, hello. Uh, Thomas is done. I apologize. Uh, we might have Thomas back, but uh, we will probably try to plan it better next time. So it's not, um, you know, for five and a half hours of absolute madness. But for now, it's going to be just me and Gabe for a little while. And uh, we figured after the intense, long conversations about Irish politics that we did in our last series, we would slow down and do something a little fun. So uh, I got a real treat for you today, folks. You excited? I yeah, hope I'm so. not going to lie. Um, for a lot of those conversations that we were having with uh, Thomas, I just kind of zoned out. Oh, yeah, I could tell. When I was listening back to it, I could absolutely tell that's what happened. There would just be long stretches where you said nothing. <laughs> no, I was just fucking around on my computer. Yeah, okay. Well, don't do that. Try to be professional. Sorry, it was really hard not to. I have ADHD, number one. Number two, so do it I. was five and a half hours. So do I. And we did not record it. We never recorded for more than 90 minutes. I think you can deal. I think I need a med change. Okay, that may be. <laughs> You should probably talk to your doctor about that, not our audience of middle-aged men. <laughs> I thought it was middle-aged women who listened yeah, to Yeah, I checked. That was wrong. It's middle-aged men. Sorry. Oh. Uh, I apologize if you were looking, if you were hoping to score, like, a sugar mommy off the podcast. That's probably not happening. No, I was just surprised <laughs> by the uh, the fact that it would be middle-aged women. Yeah, same. But, yeah, no, that was wrong on my part. So, regardless, today we got a fun one, folks. Gabe, have you ever heard of Marjorie Taylor Greene? Yes. Uh, okay, so we're not covering Marjorie Taylor Greene, because as a rule, we try not to cover people who are still in office. But um, are you familiar with the area around of her district? Sort of the area in between Atlanta and Nashville? Uh, Cobb yeah, it's County. Uh, very Republican, and it's very white, isn't it? It's uh, it's so conservative that um, it's the area that lit, that lynched Leo Frank and then covered it up, leading to the creation of the ADL. Oh wow! Yeah, so uh, we got another, we got a good old fashioned Southern boy on the podcast today. Uh, he used to hold. It, it isn't technically Marjorie Taylor Greene's district because it was a different number, but it's the same area. Sort of ro- the suburbs, like Rome and Cobb County, that kind of general area. Uh, if you look up Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, you'll see what I mean. It's just that general area. Uh, this man was sort of a martyr to the American anti-communist movement, and quite possibly the most paranoid man to ever serve in Congress. More than Nixon? Um, I think if he got to be president, probably. But since he never did, no. Yeah, I guess he, just by virtue of not being president, uh, Larry McDonald just did not have access to as many resources to, like, wiretap your political opponents the way Nixon did. Yeah, don't worry, though. We're going to get into some wiretapping. And, yeah, that that is the name of who we're talking about, Larry McDonald. Uh, no relation to the guy who founded the McDonald's Corporation. I did check. It's just a decently common Irish-American name. So... Lawrence Patton McDonald was born on April Fool's Day in 1935. His middle name was in honor of George S. Patton, a distant relative. He supposedly kept a picture of Patton on his desk, so he was quite proud of the connection. Uh, and would you like to take a guess of the other picture he kept on his desk? Uh, uh, can you give me 
a enough of a hint that I can know like the types of people to guess, but not so much that um, it's obvious. He was a head of state for quite a while. Jefferson Davis? No. He was alive at the same time as Larry McDonald. Uh was he uh Mussolini? No. But you're on the right he, track. Uh what a continent? Europe. Uh Hitler? No. Uh Franco? Yep. This Damn. guy was so fucking insane that he kept a framed portrait of Francisco Franco in his office. Uh Francisco Even as a congressman? Fran- yes. Okay, that's yes. kind of weird. Yeah. Um, the only information I found out about our boy Larry here's childhood came from a profile of him by the John Birch Society. So, uh, make of that what you will. (laughs) They claim he really liked Fu Manchu novels, which would check out for his later racism. I don't know what uh, that is. Uh, it was this, like, stereotypical, like, evil Chinese villain in, like, movies and stuff. Uh, okay. Yeah, um... They said uh, he was really into snakes, which is pretty funny, uh, considering how much of a he snake was one. he would grow up. Yeah, considering he was one. And it also contains one of the funniest quotes I have ever... Uh, it also contains one of the funniest quotes I have ever seen while doing research for this podcast. Uh, it describes a scene where uh, Larry McDonald was eight years old and his mother was hitting him with a switch uh, because he did something bad. And that's what you did in the 40s. You just viciously beat your own children. Wait, like uh, a Nintendo Switch? No, like a it's like a stick that you use to beat children with. Oh, uh, okay. I was confused. I was really hoping for some analogy. Yeah, neither of us here. Yeah, neither of us grew up in the South, so we don't really know, but this was just like normal back then. Like that was is weird. Like you were weird if you didn't beat your kids. I feel like that was also pretty normal just in the country in general. Oh, yeah. But uh he said to her, quote Mother, I'm not crying because you're whipping me. I'm crying because I disobeyed you. Which, I I really think that shows just how much of a bootlicker Larry McDonald was, even from the age of eight. And it's one of those things where even if that quote isn't true, it's a story his mother told. So it's sort of like spiritually true of him. Like that was what he was like as a child. As yeah. far as we know. Yes. Uh, don't worry, though. Uh, the John Birch Society will come up again in this episode, because of course it will. It's so, probably uh, going to come up in other episodes as well. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling the John Birch Society is going to come up a lot on this podcast. But yeah, so... Uh, uh, yeah, we'll explain them a bit later. For now, I'll say uh, Larry McDonald's father and grandfather were both doctors, uh, and his father was specifically a urologist. So Larry's career choice was clear. When he was 17, he enrolled at the Emory University School of Medicine. Wait, he went to medical school when he was 17? He went to, like, pre-med school at 17. He didn't become a doctor. Ah, okay, I was confused. But yeah, he was able to graduate high school a year early because he took summer classes every year. Oh, nice. Did he end up uh, becoming a licensed urologist? Yeah, we'll get into that. But um, he had a genuine disdain for people who didn't take school seriously. And much like certain uh, hosts of this podcast, was a big history buff. I'm not going to lie. I'm actually surprised to hear that he had a disdain for people who didn't take school seriously. He took school insanely seriously. He was, like, very studious. 
If you were stupid but tried hard, would he have a disdain for you, or is it only if you didn't care? Uh, I did. There, the information on him I found was not that detailed. Uh huh. So I think nobody knows that except maybe anyone who knew him during a child that is still alive. Uh, yeah. So he became a urologist like his father and was always a staunch conservative, coming from a sort of traditional Southern, decently well-off white family. Uh, his, he grew up in like the suburbs of Georgia, the sort of white flight area. Uh, he joined the Naval Reserve in 1957 and was stationed in Iceland. Now, this is where it gets a little weird. So the only, so I was able to find his like stuff about his military service that basically said he was a doctor. He was like serving as like a doctor in Iceland for them, for the military. Like just, I think like for the Air Force specifically. And this seems to be where he went insane because according to him in his own John Birch Society profile, uh, he felt that the American activities in Iceland weren't doing enough to stop communism. Uh, he felt that socialism was taking root in Iceland and uh, America might even be helping it. Uh, yeah, the John Birch Society is weird like that. Weren't they the ones who came up with the uh, the theory of Eisenhower as sort of a Manchurian candidate? Oh, yeah, we're going to get into that. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> yeah, not like a lot, but it, it does come up later in the script a little bit. So, yeah, um, he also got married to an Icelandic national and took her back with him to Georgia when his service ended in 1961. He spends his next three years getting his postgraduate education in urology, like his father, at the University of Michigan, which has once again tangentially come up on this podcast. Uh, a lot of crazy people go there. I don't know why. So he's going to good schools and stuff. He seems he like is. he's he was very smart, smart, at least academically. He was academically quite good, supposedly. Like, all the sources I found about him said he was, like, very studious. He did his research. Like, he, he was a good student. Uh, Which kind he of just makes it more confusing why he did this, because he could have just become a successful urologist or, like, a longtime congressman from Georgia. Well, we'll get into why he did this and didn't just stay a urologist. Don't worry. So, yeah, he moves to Georgia, living in Marietta, which is in Georgia's 7th district, centered around Cobb County and the suburban city of Rome, basically the area between Atlanta and Chattanooga. Uh, I think I said Atlanta and Nashville earlier. I meant Atlanta and Chattanooga. So that's on me, listener. Um, this area is about as conservative as it gets. It's currently represented in Congress by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I'm sure Larry McDonald would love. So Larry McDonald, he sells down with his Icelandic-born wife, he has a few kids, but he's still obsessed with this, like, shadowy communist conspiracy that he thinks has in is infiltrating America and destroying it. So uh, who does he link up with? Uh, who else but the John Birch Society? People who also believe that. Um, you might know the John Birch Society from their uh, other hits, such as their staunch opposition to the civil rights movement on the grounds that it was communist infiltration. Uh, uh, their withdrawal from the UN. Yes, we'll get into that too, don't worry. Uh, their founder, Robert Welch's belief that Dwight Eisenhower was a secret Soviet agent, and yes, the uh, desire to withdraw from the UN because it was secretly communist. Yeah, Eisenhower, by the way, domestically, I'd say did a lot of good things, but foreign policy overthrew a, social, a democratic socialist government in Guatemala because of, because they were mean to a fruit company. 
yeah, Eisenhower was hardly like a leftist hero. Uh, we're not getting like the leftist rehabilitation of Dwight Eisenhower anytime soon. I mean, domestically, he was fine. I mean, I guess. I mean, yeah, like relatively, but he also overthrew the government of. He also overthrew governments that were socialist. No, like no, I don't know no. how you can. I don't know how you can look at that and be like, yeah, the guy who's like dedicated to fighting communism, he's secretly a communist. Yeah, exactly. The guy who is materially doing things to hurt communism is secretly a communist because Even my brain in Iran. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, because Guatemala. my brain is made of mashed potatoes. Yeah, also the fact that he was anti-Castro. Oh, yeah. Shockingly, Castro will not come up in this podcast, in this story. Uh, I have a future episode planned where Castro will come up, though. Okay. But I don't know when that's going to happen, so I'll table it for now. Uh, Larry McDonald clearly liked all this stuff about the John Birch Society. He joined in the mid-60s. That was as specific as I could find. I couldn't find the exact year. Uh, and he was an active member. He was constant. That being said, I think he joined in 65 or 66, because 1966 is the year they had their highest ever recorded membership. Uh, he would. Uh, he was an active member, too. Uh, he was constantly pushing their pamphlets, their books, their documentaries. He would sometimes host gatherings, where he and, like, all his homies would watch John Birch Society documentaries, or, like, he would read out their pamphlets to his guests, which uh, sounds like the worst dinner party in human was, history. Was this an officially John Birch Society-sanctioned event, or was it this just, like, at his house? It was just, like, at his house. That sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was how a lot of John Birch Society stuff spread, like, you'd get, like, one or two guys in a, in a community who was really into it, and then they would just propagandize constantly. Essentially, being in the John Birch Society requires being a freelance propagandist for no pay. That you seems just like do, a very shitty deal. You just do it because you love the game. You just love fighting communism, you know? Yeah, you have to really be a, uh, a believer to stick with the John Birch Society. Oh, yeah, and... Larry McDonald was nothing if not a true believer. So in by 1972, oh, also, um, supposedly during this time, uh, he once told his wife, uh, "We're at war, and people do not make love in wartime," uh, which was which was his response when she asked to have intercourse with him. Wait, so uh, yes, supposedly. Wait, how did you find out about this? Now I'm curious. Uh, I think it was in a Political Research Association article, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> I did all of the research for this two-parter in one day, so it's kind of scrambled my brain a little bit. That's uh, if, fair. If you want to know our sources, um, email the podcast at runningonapostpod at gmail.com, and I'll post them for you. Because you do a lot about him, I kind of figured you just had a lot of this research just kind of done because you enjoyed doing it. I do enjoy doing it, but I wanted to compile it from actual sources just in case. That's just in case fair, I misremembered yeah. stuff. I didn't want to just go off memory. Yeah. You know, this is a serious academic podcast. I don't know if you uh, knew that. Very true. Very, yeah. very true. Yeah, exactly. So um, he's so uh, dedicated to fighting communism that he's uh, becoming a Volsel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, another reason he's, uh, another thing he's dedicated to fighting, uh, would you like to guess? Uh, let me guess, um, sex between mixed-race couples? Uh, sort of, but not, not what I was going for. 
interracial marriage? No, that that was pretty much it. Yes, but I was going to say abortion. But also, uh, yes, desegregation. He was a massive pro-life activist, which originally encouraged him to run for Congress in 1972. Uh, he failed. Uh, and then he ran again in 1974 in Georgia's 7th District. Now, the 1974 midterm elections were somewhat chaotic, to put it lightly. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of a thing called Watergate. Uh, if you haven't, look it up. It was a big deal. Uh, to any listeners we have in middle school, uh, if your textbook hasn't gotten there yet, uh, just look it up. You'll see what I mean. Uh, also, what are you doing listening to this podcast in middle school? Go make friends. Yeah, that too. Um, yeah. N- no, but the 74 midterm elections, Republicans lost, what, like 45 seats in the House? There were 75 new Democratic uh, congressmen. Yeah, which, I mean, to be fair. Yeah, to be fair. <laughs> The Republican president resigned after a massive scandal. So, yeah, obviously it was good for the Democrats. There was an election that uh, the Democrat, I think it was the Democrat who won at the end of the day, New Hampshire, by two votes. (laughs) In a Senate election that had, I think, two or three recounts. Holy shit, that's crazy. And then there was a special election afterwards because they couldn't resolve it. (laughs) Yeah, that, the 1974 midterm elections were nuts. Uh... Now, Larry McDonald was one of the new 75 Democrats in Congress, although we, although he took his seat from another Democrat, uh, he won an upset primary victory against John W. Davis. And uh, you want to know what his number one issue was? Davis or uh, McDonald? McDonald. Um, can you give me a hint? Uh, it involves black people. And uh, specifically desegregation. Sh- yes. His number one issue was... He was against school integration because uh, this was like the white flight suburbs of Atlanta. So it was like all the white people who had moved so they could send their kids to all white schools. Uh, And in the more rural part of the district, which is where John W. Davis was from, this was less of an issue. So he didn't really think about it that much. So he voted in favor of school integration, like efforts, like busing and stuff. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but in that part of Georgia, in the very rural part of that district, there's very few black people. Yeah, exactly. It's like 90, it's like more than 90% white in all those counties, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, exactly. And that's the area John L.U. Davis was from. So he just didn't think about it that much. Whereas McDonald, because he was from these, the, the, let's say more rate, the uh, more actively racist, we'll say, suburbs. Uh, he was all about making sure you could send your kids to an all-white school, which uh, the people of this district loved. So he trounced Davis in the primary and went on to win the general. Uh, that should give you a pretty good idea of where he was. He also, one of the first things he did was put in a framed portrait of Francisco Franco. Which, uh, yeah, that should give you a pretty good idea of what his politics were. Like uh, most I, people on the pot that we cover on the podcast, any like in any uh fact about them by itself usually gives you a pretty good idea of just how awful these people are. Yeah, and uh, something very funny. Uh, you wanna know what the first bill he ever co-sponsored was on the first day of the ninety fourth Congress um, in nineteen seventy five? Is it a hot button issue? No. Okay, it's gonna be something really weird and esoteric. Uh, yes. Hmm. Can you tell me what the issue was and then I'll guess the specific thing? 
Uh, it relates to foreign policy. Okay. Um, let me see. And it's not um, about the Soviet Union. Okay. Uh, or the Eastern Bloc at all. Okay. I'm, let me just give me a few seconds to formulate something. Yeah, go for it. Was involved in some weird, uh, some weird, uh, like I don't know, condiment price fixing scheme, and for some reason that meant we had to stop being friends with West Germany. Uh, no, you actually got way more esoteric than you needed to. Uh, uh, what it was is he co-sponsored a resolution that says the United States will never give up the Panama Canal Zone. Oh, that's not that esoteric. Well, uh, this was in 1975, and um, would you like to know when the Panama Canal Zone was transferred from the U.S. to Panama? The treaty was signed in the 70s, but it wasn't transferred until, I think, December 31st, 99, right? Yeah, but... Um, it was the treaty was signed in 1977, and uh, Larry McDonald would continue sponsoring bills, say reasserting U.S. sovereignty over the Panama Canal Zone, with usually less than five co-sponsors. Uh, by the way, if you ever want to have a good time, uh, go up to uh, look, go to the Congress.gov page of any insane Congressperson, uh, sort by uh, the bills they sponsored and co-sponsored. And look for ones with under five co-sponsors. That's how you get the real good shit. That was how I did a lot of the research for this episode. Because <laughs> that's where the real insane things happen. The stuff where it's like, all right, you got one other guy to sign on to this. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, he was continuing to sponsor these anti-giving-up-the-Panama-Canal-Zone uh, bills uh, up until eight months before the treaty was signed. Okay. Uh, he was just constantly on this, uh, and then even after, and then even later, he continued to sponsor resolutions, trying to like overturn the treaty, and also constantly tried to um, put in resolutions saying that the House has to approve treaties the president signs. Which, and it was I entirely because no, that did not happen, and it was entirely because he was mad that we gave up the Panama Canal. I did not expect that from him, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Um, now, the other thing he tried to do in 1975, and really throughout his congressional career, was reestablish the Committee on Internal Security, which, um, that was the renamed version of, are you familiar with the House Un-American Activities Committee? Yes. Would you like to give a little background on it for the listener? Yeah, sure. So it was basically formed, I think, in the uh, 40s. Yeah. And what it basically did was, uh, it was, uh, it was responsible for, I guess, uh, you could say, weeding out certain quote unquote un-American elements in society and politics and government, mainly communists. And it kind of became most well known for uh, a lot of red baiters like uh, Richard Nixon, uh, kind of just taking over. Yeah, and what they would do is they they essentially would use it to blacklist you from society as much as they could. Uh, like, if you were a labor organizer, they would try to harass you and have you jailed by saying you were a Soviet agent. Um, they destroyed the career of uh, noted actor-musician Paul Robeson. Uh, like, he was a promising star in Hollywood, and then after HUAC, he just wasn't anymore. Uh, like, it's they really... really yeah, no, he was really talented, though. They, he, they destroyed a lot of people's lives over yeah. pretty much baseless accusations. Uh, they were bad. And in 1969, it was renamed the um, Committee on Internal Security. 
And um, it was abolished on the first day of the 94th Congress in 1974, which is also when McDonald took office. (laughs) So he missed it by one election. And he was mad about that for his entire career. Yeah. Uh, He also co-sponsored a bill to investigate the JFK assassination, which is kind of cool, I have to admit. Uh, A little Peter Dale Scott pilled. I support it. That that's sort of a rare W for Larry McDonald in my eyes, but it didn't get anywhere. I assume no, no. Uh, most of the like bills I looked at uh, that were like you know the real crazy shit he sponsored. It was foreign policy related. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that passed was like standard condemnations: USSR, North Korea, the People's Republic of China, etc. Nothing too out there. Uh, He was constantly trying to uh, get resolutions through for a national right to life and and a right to life constitutional amendment, either a bill outlawing abortion entirely or a constitutional amendment outlawing abortion entirely. What was his uh, opinion on Israel? I'm just curious. Loved it. Really? Yes. We'll get into it. What about Saudi Arabia? Uh, I didn't look if he ever expressed an opinion on Saudi Arabia. You want me to check now? Eh, no, it's fine. Okay, I'll check in between episodes. Remind me. Okay. All right. Um, he was also, of course, a huge anti-union guy. Uh, he was constantly trying to gut New Deal era labor legislation. Uh, he want he passed a bill. It was called like the Transparency and Unions Act or some shit. It never went anywhere. Uh, it would have uh, made it so employers would be notified of Department of Labor complaints made against them. And also they would be notified of who made the complaint. Wait, aren't you notified of the complaint now? Uh, you're notified of the complaint when they come to inspect you. Oh, okay, okay. I was I was going to say, I thought it was just like, I thought it, the implication was that you would never find out ever prior to his bill. No, the, the point was uh, that you would know before an inspection came. Oh, and also the point is that way you could fire people who made complaints. Yeah, that kind of defeats the purpose of the uh, filing a complaint. Yes, yes, it does. Uh, which he wanted. He wanted to gut the Department of Labor. Um, he caused a minor uh, international incident in 1977 when he tried to impeach the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Andrew Young. Because Andrew Young said that the U.S. has political prisoners, just like the Soviet Union does, in reference to incarcerated anti-war and civil rights protesters. Uh, Larry McDonald considered this uh, pretty much objectively true statement, uh, treasonous and un-American, so he tried to impeach him. Uh, I would also say it is worth noting that Andrew Young was black and the first black man to serve as UN ambassador for the U.S. Uh, Larry McDonald was not the biggest fan of African Americans, or Africans for that matter, uh, and I, I don't want to say it was entirely motivated by racial animus, but it definitely was in part. <laughs> Like, I, I feel like it would be remiss if I didn't mention he was saying this about a black man. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, white supremacy, McDonald never met an anti-communist he didn't like, 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 to the point where he actively supported U.S. trade with, drumroll please, Rhodesia. Rhodesia! Yes, Rhodesia. Uh, On Rhodesia, he once said in Congress, quote, uh, this is very racist, by the way, uh, so I'm going to read it in a silly voice. Uh, The situation in Rhodesia is that they have a problem with conflicting civilizations, Western civilization versus African tribal civilization. 
a similar conflict developed in the emerging United States in 1776. Luckily for us, we did not have a United Nations, and no United Nations sanctions were applied against us in, 19, in 1776. A direct parallel exists. Um, the thing is here, he's kind of right in that the U.S. was also founded on displacing its native population for the benefit of white settlers. Uh, he just missed, he, I guess he just skipped the part where that's bad, actually. And was like, no, um, uh, and was like, yeah. actually doing a good thing by copying us. Yeah, he was like, actually, it's good to displace native populations for white settlers. Not uh, just that, but what they were doing was probably way worse than what happened here. I mean, is it better to kill people or enslave them? Kind of a moot point. Yeah, he true. also said of Rhodesia, comparing them to other African nations, quote, Rhodesia is one of the few with a true parliament, even though representation accorded to blacks may be argued. 23% of our house is black, 50% of our senate is black, and 66% of the army that fights terrorists coming across the border is black. Was the By contrast, the Rhodesian senate black? I have no idea. By way of contrast, however, how many Jews sit in the Soviet Polit Pol Politburo? Not one that I am aware of. And then he I'm went on he about said like that because so a lot of these anti-communists are also big anti-Semites. He was not a big anti-Semite. He was Which a massive pro. He was like he wasn't a fan of Jews, but he didn't rail against Jews. He just associated with people who railed against Jews and was okay with it. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh, anytime someone sponsored a bill to, like, condemn a anti-communist or U.S.-aligned government, uh, his response was always, but what about the Soviet Union? As if Congress wasn't constantly passing denunciations of the Soviet Union. <laughs> or what about North Korea? What about China? You know, whatever. You get the idea. Yeah. Um, I just... Rhodesia is one of the few with a true parliament, even though the representation accorded blacks may be argued, is just such an insane sentence to have. <laughs> like, how do you say that and not realize you're the bad guy here? But yeah, you guys I, are crazy, I guess. Yeah, also in terms of whether or not that's true, I know Rhodesia's army was majority black because it was conscripts. Uh... I don't know about the Rhodesian parliament. Uh, I sort of don't care because it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, because either way, the policies being enacted were very bad. Yeah, what what they did is they, um, it wasn't explicitly race-based voting qualifications. It was a property qualification. And then they made it almost impossible for black people to get property by, you know, having white people steal it. Or like kind of like here after the Civil War where it would be like poll taxes and it's – and like technically, you know, if you're black and can pay the poll tax, then fine. But uh, most black people were too poor to pay that tax. Yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, we'll let 5% of black people vote so no one gets mad at us. Well, then yeah, Rhodesia exactly. was probably smaller because <laughs> Rhodesia was never more than like 10, 15% white. Yeah. Rhodesia was fucking insane. Rhodesia will probably come up again on this podcast. Oh, definitely. Uh, we'll probably will. cover Ian Smith it's, or Mugabe or someone in, in that vein at some point. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll cover that white guy who was like really active in Rhodesia and then just stayed on to Zimbabwe and was their agricultural minister for like 10 years. Maybe we'll cover that guy. That could be Maybe. Fun. Yeah. Anyways, uh, in case you're wondering uh, how many people voted uh, yes to um, 
remove sanctions on Rhodesia. Uh, would you like to guess how many House reps voted for that bill? One. Nope. Way higher. Uh, majority? No. Uh, 150. Very close. 160. Really? How many Which is Republicans, insane how to many Democrats? About. I didn't check. I didn't check the party breakdown. I just checked how many uh, people vote on each side. Uh, my guess would be it was a lot of Southern Democrats, like Larry McDonald. Yeah, checks out. But I don't know. Uh, another thing Larry McDonald was mad about, uh, the U.S. losing Vietnam. He was not a fan. Uh, he just could not accept that uh, the U.S. government got handed an L, and he tried to block the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, which is what unified, which is what North Vietnam called the country when they reunified it. Uh, he tried to block their uh, entry to the U.N., uh, this was all in the 95th Congress, which was essentially a giant string of L's, because all of that stuff I mentioned failed. He couldn't get rid of the Congress 77 to 79? Uh, let me see. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the 95th, yeah. Um, you know what Larry McDonald couldn't do? He couldn't even get a monument built to his favorite Chetnik general and Nazi collaborator, um, I gotta try my best on this name, Draza Mihailovich. It's probably Draza Draza Mihailovich. Draza Mihailovich. We'll go with that. Uh, uh, Gavrilo, if you're listening, uh, feel free to yell at me. Uh, Yeah, he couldn't even get a resolution passed to halt school integration and busing, uh, which is, you know, the thing he got elected to do. But uh, his voters did. His district didn't care. They kept reelecting him. <laughs> and I mean, it makes sense that it didn't pass, considering a lot of people in Congress were Northern Democrats. Yeah, yeah, no. A lot of people in Congress had no interest in like stopping school integration, but uh, Larry McDonald sure did. <laughs> oh boy, did he ever! Yeah, he also tried to co-sponsor a bill with Ron Paul because, of course that would remove all federal regulatory agencies after three years unless they were specifically renewed. Oh, wait, what? Yes, literally all of them. So just would just disband them? Yes, he wanted to essentially disband the entire federal government. That's hilarious. Yes. So you would have to... I really think... I feel like that would uh, give rise to a bunch of really weird conflicts if that ever came to pass. Yes, yes, it would. Like somebody disbanding the EPA because of some weird, like, loophole in the legislation. All right, yeah, tell me more. No, I'm just saying things like that would happen. It would be very funny. Yeah, it would be. That's true. Um, He was also a close friend of uh, Texas Congressman Ron Paul, who was also a former doctor. So I don't know what it is about being a former doctor who enters Congress that makes you psychotically right-wing, but who's also a former doctor? Who? Besides Rand Paul, who Ron Paul, Paul Gosar, really? Yeah, he was he he's a dentist. I think Rand, I think Rand Paul was a dentist too. No, I think no Rand Paul's an eye doctor. I think. Okay, yeah. Well, something about being a doctor who enters Congress just makes you psychotically right wing, I suppose. Because that's four. No, I that's think there crazy. Are some progressives who are doctors. You hit me with a few. I'm trying to think. I don't... Let's see. Uh, I don't even need a progressive. I would take, like, a moderate Democrat. There are definitely I would take some. a blue dog. 
I think there's a woman in Congress named Kim Schreier or something. I think she's a she was a doctor. Okay. All right. I'll count it. And she's like a moderate Democrat. All right. Uh, yes. So um, Ron Paul and Larry McDonald were frequently the only co-sponsors of each other's bills to do stuff like introduce a constitutional amendment to outlaw income tax. Uh, so he was the 16th Amendment? Yes. He was a big fan of that. He really hated income tax because... Uh, according to the John Burr Society, that was one of the planks of the Communist Manifesto was an income tax. Uh, and it was evidence that the communist conspiracy had already infiltrated the highest levels of U.S. government. Uh, like because it made us overthrow uh, Salvador Allende. The... That's right. Uh, oh, speaking of. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> oh, actually, one more thing before I get into that. Uh, are you familiar with Frank Carlucci? uh heard the name but don't really know anything about him okay well he was a he was uh the secretary of defense in the 80s uh and he was uh he was cia director under carter and a bunch of stuff like that he was like a lifelong spook basically uh he was like literally the u.s he was the ambassador to the congo when patrice lumumba was killed and so he might just have has like a lot of a uh, lot of stuff on his hands. He has a lot of blood on his hands. Yeah. He, I'm not going to say he definitely was involved in the murder of Patrice Lumumba, but he probably was. I mean, I'm not, I'm skeptical just because like I don't think that there was that much to be gained for the U.S. personally by killing Mobutu or not. No, Lumumba, not Mobutu. Or Lumumba, sorry. Well, considering that Eisenhower t- told Alan Dulles to kill him, I would say there was something to gain. Yeah, Lumumba's uh different. Lumumba, we definitely had something to gain by killing him. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm talking about. Lumumba. Yeah, I was well, confused for a second. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, he uh, he did not. He, he was not. Yeah, he was not involved in anything with Mobutu. Um, Lumumba might come up again on this podcast. Entirely possible. He did in the Denard episode. Yeah. Yeah, he might again. Uh, con- a lot of weird stuff happens in the Congo. A lot of mercenaries uh, we're going to be covering. Yeah. But um, Larry McDonald felt that Frank Carlucci was uh, secretly a communist because everyone was secretly a communist to Larry McDonald, even literal agents of the CIA who worked to kill communists. <laughs> well, that's part of the plan. They want you to think that they're not communist. Yeah, it's like um, how the it's like how the guy who was in charge of finding out of uh, getting rid of informants in the IRA turned out to be a British informant. It's like that. That's yeah, exactly. another guy we're going to have to cover at some point. Steak knife? Or Absolutely. it's kind of like doing drugs in front of a cop when you're... Or it's kind of like being a DEA agent and doing drugs in front of the dealer. You have to <laughs> yeah, gain to their trick, trust. You have to gain their trust. Yeah. You have to gain their trust by doing what they want you to do. And Fuck, then gotta, after that, that's when you fuck them over. Yeah, we got to cover Freddy Scapatici at some point. That's going to be a fun one. Don't know who that is. He was uh, Steak Knife. He was the he was the chief of uh, like in, like plugging leaks in the IRA, and he turned out to be a British informant. Oh damn! Yeah, he was a crazy story. Um, I'm going to link the Frank Carlucci CIA director confirmation testimony hearings uh, and just control F it for Larry McDonald. Uh, you'll get some fun stuff, listener. <laughs> Can you at least tell us one or two? Uh, I didn't write them down, so no. Oh. Uh, maybe sucks. I'll include, yeah, maybe I'll include him in part two. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, uh, his rhetoric was equally right wing and remember, remember Pinochet? Yes. Uh, so 
Larry McDonald said that we need to massively reduce taxes and regulations, as well as foreign aid. Uh, However, you want to know one regime he really said we needed to keep foreign aid coming to? Pinochet's? The Pinochet regime in Chile. Uh, He spent a lot of time saying that the RGAF uh, leftist-aligned regime in Peru uh, was going to invade Chile to establish communism. Uh, So, therefore, the U.S. needs to give Allende a bunch of tanks. Uh, That was a big thing of his. Wait, wasn't Peru at this point like 80% agricultural? Yeah, Peru was like definitely like not American aligned at this point under the RGAF, but uh, they were not exactly a military threat to Chile. <laughs> I was gonna say they're still they're still like not that industrialized, are they? No, they're not. Yeah. Uh, anyways, um, one screed he entered into the congressional record about Chile was this, Mister Speaker. To say that the American media has been slanted in its reporting of news from Chile would be the understatement of the year. As in the case of Rhodesia, even when these countries do what the American media suggests, no credit is given. In fact, the motives for taking these actions are then usually questioned. The Richmond Times-Dispatch had an excellent editorial in this regard on May 16, 1978, pointing out the inordinate amount of space that has been devoted to the relatively minor sins of Chile, as compared with those of Red Cuba and Cambodia, for example. Uh, Larry McDonald does this a lot. Um, Anytime someone brought up a country he liked doing something bad, he always said, but what about, insert socialist country here, as if Congress hadn't already condemned that country a hundred times over. That's what people, like, still do, I feel. Oh yeah, people still do that. They're like, oh, what about this other thing that's already being, that's already, like, being worked on? It's like, yeah, what about it, bitch? Yeah, I also think it's bad, too, and it's a good thing we're working on it. Yeah, like, yes, the the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia was also bad. (laughs) What's your point? So what happened next? Well, are you familiar with the extension of remarks tactic? I don't know what that is. Basically, you're allowed to enter things into the congressional record without directly saying them on the House floor via extension of remarks. Uh, and Larry McDonald would use this to insert screeds against communism, uh, globalism, etc., and uh, and just like individual people and groups he didn't like because he um, just didn't have time to spit them in, like in his speech. Yes, and also because this way he could insert them into the congressional record, meaning they were protected speech from libel. Interesting. Uh, yeah, Jim this te- also took advantage of that, but he would just say the things out loud. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, there are a lot fewer fun recordings of Larry McDonald than there are of Jim Trafficant, but there's a few. Maybe I'll play them at the end of an episode. We'll see. Um, and this strategy was pioneered by the one, the only, Joseph McCarthy, who uh, Larry McDonald fucking loved so much. I'm shocked. He loved Joseph McCarthy so much that he hired Sheila Louise Reese who was a former researcher for the House Internal Security Committee, to be one of his staffers and his chief researcher. Sheila Louise Reese and her husband, John H. Reese, they were sort of a husband and wife superstar duo of the John Bircherist right. Uh, they worked for years, if not decades, to compile information on supposed subversives. Louise Reese, it should be mentioned, used to work undercover for the FBI and police infiltrating leftist as well as lesbian groups. Uh... John H. Reese, it should also be mentioned, was a literal police informant on multiple occasions. 
Uh, so they were essentially doing freelance police work against, like, anti-war protesters and other people who weren't doing anything illegal. They were just doing things the government disliked. And, like, lesbian student groups? Yeah. Uh, McDonald was essentially running the House Un-American Activities Committee out of his congressional office. He hired former military and FBI intelligence officers to work for him. And supposedly, FBI agents and police officers would stop by to pick up dossiers on leftist groups. Now, that feels like that's, that feels like it's, uh, not very professional. No. Um, part two will be almost entirely about that. I have a lot more to say about that. However, for okay. now, I need to pivot to other stuff. Of him just doing freelance, uh, rec- of freelance spy work? Yes, that is almost the entirety of what the second half of the script is about. Are However, you still there? Yeah, I'm still there. I'm still here. Can you not hear me? Sorry about that, folks. We had a minor audio issue. We're back now. So Hello. we'll return. Hello. So we'll return to Larry's congressional shenanigans and illegal domestic surveillance, but I want to pivot to some other things. Remember when I said that Larry McDonald was a practicing doctor before he entered Congress? Wait, can I guess what he did? Sure. He tried to do like a mandatory like urology appointments or something for like members over a certain age. No, it's actually uh, much less healthy than that. What? Uh, Gabe, are you familiar with the chemical laetrile? No. Okay, so it's derived from apricot pits. Uh, the FBDA has declared it to have, quote, no medical value. And they have also described it as, quote, potentially poisonous. So in other words, uh, don't consume this. Yes. And um, especially don't, cons- don't inject it into your body if you're a cancer patient. And especially, especially if you're a doctor, don't tell cancer patients that they should do it. And not only that they should do it, that it will cure cancer. So in other words, uh, the, uh, the idea that this is healthy for you is pseudoscientific bullshit, and anybody who tells you otherwise is either lying or misinformed. Yes. So um, in 1976, Larry McDonald was sued for medical malpractice <laughs> by a former <laughs> patient's widow. <laughs> this is a t- yeah. uh, We're laughing, but like, this is a type of guy who does get elected to Congress. Oh, absolutely. Like, they're just constantly being sued or, you know, accused of, like, various types of impropriety or illegal conduct. Uh, They have some, they either have, like, a very, like, norm, like, very, like, blasé job or it's, like, something really weird. Uh, They're just constantly getting into either, like, fights or, yeah, weird medical malpractice suits. Yeah. Um... The by the way the the FDA quote about Laetrile uh, that was in 1963 before Larry McDonald started practicing medicine professionally at all. So literally, no time in his professional life was it okay to like prescribe this. No, and at no point, and yet he did it anyways because he did not care. And uh, the woman who was suing him said it contributed to the premature death of her husband, John L. Scott. Uh, this is probably true. I'm just gonna put that out there. And uh, I found a New York Times article from 1977 saying that the John Birch Society was pushing to legalize Laetrile in at least nine states and was doing so in cooperation with the Liberty Lobby, which was founded and run by Willis Carto, a Holocaust denier, and the White People's Party, a neo-Nazi activist group who said that the banning of Laetrile was due to a, quote, Jewish Rockefeller clique. 
Uh, in case you think Larry McDonald uh, didn't like Nazism, uh, he once suggested that Rudolf Hess, uh, an actual Nazi, should be released from prison. And not even like uh, not even somebody who uh, was like a secret agent, just like actually a Nazi, like an office. Holder. Yeah, like a, a literal Nazi, <laughs> yeah, not a neo-Nazi, a regular Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Larry McDonald was um, not exactly a friend of uh, the oppressed masses. Um, but he was a friend of like one thing that we don't talk about enough is that all these like right wing these like dis- these like far right wing wing nut groups in the like mid century were all obsessed with alternative medicine. Uh, when we eventually Even covered now. Gordon, yeah, they still are. Uh, yeah, of, you like, see it now. A lot with, of like, new age fucking... people aren't to QAnon. Yeah, but exactly, and you see it now with like wh- what was that thing that was that horse dewormer? They were oh all uh, ivermectin. Over? Yeah, exactly. It's the same shit. Basically, Larry McDonald is, imagine if your doctor prescribed you ivermectin for cancer. And, I don't uh, have to also, imagine. <laughs> oh, yours did? Not for cancer, but yeah, ivermectin. For other things? Okay, yeah, cool. Just in general, like, not even like, not even like COVID, just, you know, like, you know, like he, he said, Gabe, listen, you, uh, I know you're down, but, you know, drinking isn't healthy, you know, uh, you can't cope in unhealthy ways, take something natural from the earth. Ivermectin, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that same New York Times article said that another fr- doctor who was a friend of Larry McDonald was treating patients with Laetrile and then instead of paying him, asking them to donate to Larry McDonald's campaign. That is super illegal. You cannot do that. Also, Horribly I have never taken ivermectin, nor have I been prescribed it, nor do I intend for that to happen to me or anyone else. Gabe's, uh... <laughs> Gabe's intestines are fucked up. He did some serious dewormer in there. <laughs> yeah. Wait, Don't ivermectin- ask me how I know that. Yeah, ivermectin, by the way, it's for horses again. Again, yeah, it's, it's for, for horses. horses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Larry McDonald also might have used uh, his terminally ill patients to disguise his gun purchases, but we'll come back to that later. I'm sorry, um, what? Yeah, we'll come back to it. Don't worry. There's so much to cover with this man. <laughs> That's a very, I'm doing uh, my best. That's a Jim Trafficant mindset right there. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Committee for Freedom of Choice in Cancer Therapy, established in 1972 as a John Burr Society cutout, was active in pushing Laetrile. Uh, it should be matched that the Laetrile campaign really revitalized the JBS. They were That's in massive decline. Because post-Goldwater, the JBS was basically told to go away by the mainstream conservative movement. Not because they were sympathetic to communists, but because they were saying, you guys are making us look crazy. We need someone like Nixon fronting this as opposed to someone who says things like, sometimes I wish we could just saw off the whole of the eastern seaboard. Yeah, exactly. Which, yes, Goldwater did say. Yeah, exactly. They needed someone more normal. Um, the Legatrill trade, however, was quite lucrative in terms of recruiting and also quite lucrative in terms of money. A lot of money was brought in to the John Burr Society by the illegal smuggling of Laetrile into the United States. In 1976, an international conspiracy was uncovered to produce Laetrile in labs in Mexico, smuggle it into the United States, and sell it to sympathetic doctors and cancer patients. Uh, several of the people arrested in, in this drug smuggling operation, which the fucking FBI found out about, uh, were active members of the John Birch Society. And uh, I assume I, friends of Larry McDonald? Uh, they were part of the John Birch Society. It's on, I don't know if they were actually his friends or not, but they were, they were part of the same organization and had the same goals. Mm. 
they were just doing drug smuggling, whereas Larry McDonald was a different link in that chain because he was the doctor prescribing it gotcha. rather than the one smuggling it across the border. Um, I cannot stress enough that Laetrile does not cure cancer. These people were profiting quite mightily off of cancer patients' desperation. It's really despicable. Really awful stuff. Um, a really cruel irony of that malpractice suit I mentioned earlier is that the man who died, John L. Scott, was a lifelong member of the John Birch Society, as was his son. His son was such a lifelong member that he wrote a letter to the court during the malpractice trial saying that he didn't think Larry McDonald committed malpractice, uh, although he had, and, but he admitted that he mostly did that because he was an active member of the John Birch Society and didn't want to hurt McDonald's political career. I would like to remind you that McDonald kind of killed his father. Really grim stuff here. Really grim. Yeah. It's bad, folks. Um, during the trial, the plaintiff's attorney once brought in some Laetrile, ground it up into a mortar and pestle, and asked Larry McDonald to eat it on the witness stand. <laughs> Wait, eat the, uh, the drug? Yeah, the ground up Laetrile. Larry McDonald said no, but he said he would inject it as a liquid if the court wanted. The jury eventually ruled that McDonald was simply negligent, not guilty of malpractice, and that he had to pay $15,000 in damages. Essentially, the ruling was that he was a bad doctor, but not a deliberately malicious doctor. Somehow that's better. I don't know why. (laughs) I feel like it kind of doesn't make a difference to the guy he killed. I was going to say, like, either way, I mean, like, I guess I'd rather have somebody who's bad at their job, but a good person than somebody who's intentionally trying to kill me, but... There comes a point where it's like, it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. Like, you you still killed this person. (laughs) Yeah. I should also mention that Larry McDonald was on the Georgia State Medical Board from 1969 until 1974. And the only reason he left is because he resigned his seat to take up his seat in Congress. Maybe it was, so you're saying it's good that he was in Congress. In a way, yes. <laughs> so this medical malpractice was hardly. Uh, Although I don't know if it was good that he was in Congress, he just shouldn't really. No, it like, was not. And he like uh, I feel like no matter what he's going to do, like you should just like he shouldn't even be in charge of like a neighborhood watch association. No, he would figure out a way to kill everyone involved. <laughs> uh, one thing I will mention is his laetrile advocacy extended into Congress. He was constantly writing bills that said the FDA couldn't only couldn't regulate drugs based on whether they were effective, only whether or not they were safe. And we'll get into that more in part two. For now, I have one paragraph I'd like to read, and then we'll wrap up. Sound good? Okay. Yeah. Now, let's talk about guns. Gabe, do you like guns? I mean, I've never fired one, but I'm not... I mean, I'd say I support gun control, but I'm not super pro or anti-gun. Okay. Well, Larry McDonald was not like you. Larry McDonald loved guns so much. He loved to hunt, he loved to fish, and he was paranoid about either a communist invasion or an internal communist insurrection. Uh, therefore, Did he, he have and a his bunker, Bircher, basically? Not that I'm aware of. Oh. Uh, he and his Bircher buddies, though, wanted a lot of guns that wouldn't be traceable back to them, so the government couldn't steal them. You want to know how he accomplished this? Sawing off the shotguns? No, uh, he did not pull a Randy Weaver. And get entrapped by the ATF and then have his wife murdered. That is not smuggled them from Zaire. If only Uh, he would convince his terminally ill patients, some of whom were on Laetrile. I would like to point out because everything is connected with this man um, to register ownership of the guns and then illegally transfer them to himself. This, this way, the guns would be registered to those people and not McDonald. He supposedly had a stockpile of. 
Okay, the most specific number I could find was up to 200. That is all every article said, up to 200. He either has just like a storage unit of firearms, or he's one of those guys who has like a room in his house that's just dedicated to storing his guns. Yes. Uh, He he mostly had handguns, shotguns, and rifles. Uh, He was very open about this. He told his friends and associates that he did this, quote, in anticipation of a possible communist invasion or insurrection in the U.S., there was um, no chance that was going to happen. That was never a thing that was going to happen, no. Um, he also sold guns to other John Birch Society guys, and sometimes just his friends. He would regularly tell people close to him, like, you know, friends, family, patients he was treating, that uh, he could get them unregistered firearms if they wanted. They just had to talk to him about it. Does this uh, count an- as uh, arms trafficking? Yes, arms trafficking. That so is, he's an uh, arms trafficker in addition to being a really bad doctor and racist. Yes. And this isn't even what he's known for. <laughs> this It feels like this guy... This is why this has to be two parts. <laughs> how much do you think was he was doing this out of like genuine belief that he had to do this? And how much do you think this was just him trying to accumulate as many negative personality traits as possible? Maybe both. Maybe he was trying to do like a hell speed run. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Getting into hell any percent glitchless. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was the speed run he was doing. Uh, an anonymous source for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution said he bought one. According to the Political Research Associates in 1977, he also listed two different addresses with his Federal Election Commission filings, neither of which were real addresses. Uh, probably not a coincidence that he introduced a bill to abolish the FEC in 1979. And, um, yeah, with... with a trail of dead bodies and illegally smuggled in gun and illegally smuggled guns. Um, that's where we're going to leave off part one of the Larry McDonald saga. Uh, we're part two. will cover his life from 1979 onward uh, where we get into where we return to that illegal domestic surveillance program. I mentioned earlier uh, that is a massive topic. So I think it deserves its own episode pretty much. Uh, as well as I'll be sprinkling in some of his congressional shenanigans in there just to keep it light. And so, yeah, tune in next week for when I get pilled and go full parapolitics mode on this podcast. It's going to be fun, folks. All right. All right. Uh, our email is runningonopposedpod at gmail.com. Our Twitter is twitter.com slash opposedpod. Our theme song is courtesy of soundcloud.com slash oxblood oxblood. Uh, you got anything else you want to say, Gabe? Uh, no, I'm... Uh... Okay, uh, just, uh, I'm done. Uh, I'm Gabe. And I'm Rose. Be safe out there, listener, and we'll see you next week. Yep.